Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. You're listening to episode 41 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In this episode, we're talking about the secret government UFO program, ATEP. Following Project Blue Book, the Air Force's position was that it had no ongoing study of UFOs. But in December 2017, it was revealed that a new study had been launched. Its name was ATIP. It stands for Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. So that tells you the basics of what they're doing. They're trying to identify threats of an advanced aerospace nature. Beginning on December 17th, 2017, Major news media, including the New York Times, started covering this. They apparently got quite a bit of good video of the UAPs. Some of those have been released. Basically, you watch them and they don't conform to any known earthly aircraft's behavior. You can hear the comm chatter with the pilots and they're just amazed at what these things are doing. Earlier this year in 2019, a letter was released that contained the names of 38 academic studies that ATIP commissioned. Weird, exotic papers. They're talking about extracting usable energy from empty space, transversible wormholes, stargates, and negative energy, high-frequency gravitational wave communication, anti-gravity for aerospace applications, warp drive, dark energy, and the manipulation of extra dimensions instantaneous communication faster than the speed of light. Do you have a bottom line? Personally, I don't know if this is alien stuff or not, but I'm glad that the government has been funding ATIP and I hope they continue to fund it because whether or not these things are of alien or human origin, we need to know about them and how we might have to deal with them one day on a military basis. You're listening to Episode 70 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're giving you an update on the Navy's UFO monitoring program, ATIP. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 2017, the New York Times announced that the U.S. Navy had been conducting a secret program to investigate UFOs. The program, known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, even had gun camera footage that Navy pilots took when encountering UFOs. Some of these videos were released to the public. But a lot has happened in recent months, some of it very surprising, and it's time for an update on the Navy's secret UFO program. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what should people know going into this episode? For a full background on ATIP, they should go back and listen to all of episode 41. In short form, for the last several years, the Department of Defense and the Navy have been conducting a program to investigate unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs, which is the term now being used in place of the older term UFO. They have footage of these objects. They are real, and nobody in the government is admitting them to be ours. They also appear to vastly exceed the flight capabilities of any known conventional aircraft. Three of the videos of these craft, known as the Gimbal, Go Fast, and FLIR-1 videos, have been released to the public. One involves 
the famous Tic Tac incident that the USS Nimitz experienced in 2004 here off the coast of San Diego. Some briefing papers, including on subjects like warp drive, wormholes, and invisibility, were commissioned by ATIP, and some have been released to the public. I also should note that there is some dispute about the current status of the program. Some have claimed it no longer exists, but this may be because it's changed its name. Covert programs frequently change their names as part of the secrecy. Others indicate that the program definitely exists, whatever its current name is. Uh, And this episode, we'll continue to call it ATIP, though, since we don't have another name for it at this point. All right. So what has happened since our last show on the topic? Well, one thing that's happened is the History Channel has broadcast a show called Unidentified, which was sponsored by the the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. That's a UFO research organization that was founded by Tom DeLonge, who was a former musician for Blink-182. To the Stars also employs Luis Elizondo, who's supposed to be the former head of the Navy UFO program. And the first season of of Unidentified ran for six episodes, and it largely focused on what had already been released to the public. It added some new detail by interviewing people like uh, Navy pilots and radar operators who were involved in the UAP encounters. For example, they interviewed uh, David Fravor, the lead pilot involved in the Tic Tac incident off San Diego. He and others revealed that the encounter was much more extensive than the few seconds of released video indicated that it went on over a number of days involving multiple unknown craft. And we did a a special patron episode of Mysterious World that we released to the patrons on patreon.com slash StarQuest that covered our sort of review of Unidentified. We talked about the show itself. Yeah, so if you're a patron and you haven't heard that or you just want to review it, go ahead and check it out. It's still on Patreon. And if you're not a patron, become one and you get access to that and all the other special patron stuff we have. Yes. Uh, so some people have been critical of the To The Stars Academy. What what can you say about that? To really dig into To The Stars and discuss the pros and cons, we need to do a whole episode. And I plan to do that in the future But here we're going to be focusing on the Navy program to keep things simple, because To the Stars is really a separate entity. Okay. So have we been learning more about the Navy program? Yeah, there have been a variety of websites reporting on it. One is theblackvault.com, which is a site that houses declassified documents that are obtained from Freedom of Information Act or FOIA requests. They've been filing requests and reporting on the progress of what they've been getting back. Also, another site is thedrive.com, which has a subpage known as The War Zone. And on The War Zone, they've been publishing a series of articles by authors Tyler Rogaway and Brett Tingley. And these articles have unearthed some particularly interesting information about what's going on with ATIP. Hmm. Our previous episode came out in May, but we recorded it in April. So let's go through events chronologically. What's happened since we originally recorded on ATIP? On April 23rd, shortly after we recorded, it was announced that the Navy was revising its guidelines to make it easier for pilots to report encounters with UAPs. The Navy told Politico, There have been a number of reports of unauthorized and or unidentified aircraft entering various military-controlled ranges and designated airspace in recent years, the Navy said in a statement in response to questions from Politico. For safety and security reasons, the Navy and the U.S. Air Force 
takes these reports very seriously and investigates each and every report. As part of this effort, it added, the Navy is updating and formalizing the process by which reports of any such suspected incursions can be made to the cognizant authorities. A new message to the fleet that will detail the steps for reporting is in draft. So that's an admission that the Navy still has some kind of program to investigate UFOs, whether it's called ATIP or something else now. The Navy also indicates that it's stepping up briefings for lawmakers in Congress. In response to requests for information from congressional members and staff, Navy officials have provided a series of briefings by senior naval intelligence officials, as well as aviators who reported hazards to aviation safety, the service said in its statement to Politico. That means, among other things, that the program is likely to get better funding in the future. It's apparently been operating on a shoestring budget since its major funding ran out in 2012, but if lawmakers are taking an active interest, they'll be funding it better. So what happened next? A few days later, on April 26th, the War Zone ran an article titled, What the Hell is Going on with UFOs in the Defense Department and the Department of Defense? In it, Tyler Rogaway pointed out that the Nimitz Carrier Group had a uniquely powerful sensor network. What most don't realize is that the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group wasn't just equipped with some of the most advanced sensors the world had to offer, but that it also had, hands down, the most advanced networking and computer processing capability of any such system. Dubbed Cooperative Engagement Capability, or CEC, this integrated air defense system architecture was just being fielded on a strike group level for the first time aboard Nimitz and the rest of its flotilla. We're talking about a quantum leap in capability and fidelity here, folks. This capability continues to evolve and mature today and will be the linchpin of any peer state naval battle of the future that the U.S. is involved with. But back in 2004, it was new and untested on the scale presented by the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group as it churned through the warning sea areas off the Baja coast. The key takeaway here is that if there ever was an opportune time to capture the very best real-world sensor data on a high-performance target in near-lab-like controlled settings offered by the restricted airspace off the Baja coast, this was it. And by intention or chance, this is exactly what happened. Rogaway also notes that someone in the Defense Department was very interested in the data from this encounter, whether the Tic Tac belonged to us or another country or aliens, because officials from the DOD immediately swooped in and took the hard drives on which the radar data was housed. Rogaway then speculates about the possibility that the Tic Tac system may have been ours, and this was all a test of the system that someone in the DOD sprang on the unsuspecting Nimitz group. There is no better place to test such a system than against the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group with its CEC abilities during its workup off the Baja coast. It is not an operational environment. Aircraft are not armed and nobody is expecting a fight. It is high-level integrated training with crews that have sharpened skills as they prepare for a cruise in which they could very well be called upon to fight for their country. He also says that the test could have been sprung by a foreign power. The same could be said of our adversaries. They too could have made some breakthroughs in highly exotic propulsion technology, but I find this less likely due to their more limited resources. But it is still possible. And he argues that the current disclosure involving ATIP and To the Stars Academy 
may be part of U.S. information warfare. There is also a very real reason why the Pentagon would want the idea of UFOs injected back into the public's consciousness and even to add validity to it. Doing so is in itself a very old chapter in Uncle Sam's information warfare playbook. During the Cold War, the government actively lied about UFOs and perpetuated UFO hysteria to cover up its secret aircraft programs. They literally spread disinformation to the public in order to create a wonderfully convenient cover for the myriad clandestine weapon systems in development or operational at the time. Now we are once again back in an age of great power competition, according to the Pentagon, and billions of dollars are being pumped into new technologies that were considered exotic themselves just years ago. With this in mind, reanimating may be the best and most broadly self-perpetuating cover story of all time for sightings of clandestine aircraft that people see in the sky seems like a highly logical and proven act. So Rogaway argues that we may have made a massive breakthrough in aerospace technology, that the Tic Tac craft is part of it, and that the government is reviving the UFO story as a cover for that fact. What happened in May? On May 27th, the Warzone published a new article by Rogaway that dealt with the 2015 UFO encounters off the East Coast of the United States. These were also discussed in the Unidentified TV series, and that's where the gimbal video came from. Rogaway writes, Five U.S. Navy F-A-18 Super Hornet crewmen have encountered a number of incredibly strange encounters with unidentified flying objects off the East Coast of the United States. Two of the pilots went on the record. The surreal craft they encountered had performance that defies known propulsion and aerodynamic capabilities and are described as looking like something akin to special effects you would have seen in a sci-fi movie circa the late 1980s. The pilots' accounts also point to a major sensor upgrade on their aircraft that made the presence of these craft even detectable at all. So they had a new state-of-the-art radar system that was what made the craft detectable. That could indicate another test of our systems was underway, whether the craft were of U.S., foreign, or alien origin. The craft in this case also was shaped differently. It looked like a cube contained in a translucent sphere, which is not like a conventional aircraft. Uh, So in June, President Trump made some comments on UFOs. What did he say? ABC commentator George Stephanopoulos asked President Trump if he had been briefed on UFOs, and here's what he had to say. We're reading more and more reports of Navy pilots seeing lots and lots of UFOs. Have you been briefed on that? What do you make of it? I have. I I think it's probably... I want them to think whatever they think. They do say, I mean, I've seen, I've seen and I've read and I've heard, and I did have one very brief meeting on it, but people are saying they're seeing UFOs. Do I believe it? Not particularly. Do you think you'd know if there were evidence of extraterrestrials? Well, I think my great, our great pilots would know. Uh, and some of them really see things that are a little bit different than in the past. So we're going to see, but we'll watch it. You'll be the first to know. So a deliberately ambiguous answer, but not highly enthusiastic about the possibility of them being alien. Hmm. So did anything else happen in June? On June 22nd, Tyler Rogaway published a news story on the war zone where he said, The war zone set out in search of any possible explanation for at least some of these incidents that don't involve fantastic origins or extremely advanced technology. Over the last month, we have identified one possibility in particular that is worth mentioning. Instead of anti-gravitational propulsion or flying machines from space, 
This possibility, and that is all it is, a possibility, has to do with specially designed radar reflector balloons and submarines, as well as a historical precedent for an obscure operational electronic intelligence gathering concept that first came to be during one of the hottest moments of the Cold War. The description given of objects involved in numerous close UFO encounters with Navy pilots off America's eastern seaboard during the 2014-2015 timeframe is akin to a beach ball or orb with a cube suspended inside of it, with the cube's corners touching or nearly touching its edges. When I thought of round orbs with cubes inside them, balloons and radar ref reflector devices came immediately to mind. Other statements have pointed to the fact that these objects can stay in the air for many hours at a time. This is a characteristic also possessed by a balloon of some sort. Even the perceived threat from a collision with one of the objects and the Navy's lack of interest in dealing with it at the time wouldn't be as surprising as it is now if they were indeed balloons. Weather balloons and other high-altitude balloons are launched into the skies daily and fly among airliners without the ability to track or avoid them. Rugaway proposes that the balloons could have been launched from a submarine operating in the area and might be more than just simple radar targets. Radar reflector-equipped balloons that are capable of being clandestinely launched from below the waves could also work in tandem with other similar balloons that carry small, expendable electronic warfare payloads aloft instead of radar reflectors. These would confuse stimulated energy enemy radars even more and could potentially produce multiple ghost radar returns that exhibit extreme performance on a radar operator's scopes. In other words, the large formations as described by radar operators in some of these encounters could be a mix of electronic warfare and radar reflector payload carrying balloons. Such a capability could be used during a time of war to distract the enemy as well as for intelligence gathering. If anything else, a submarine launch balloon system designed to catalyze clandestine Electronic intelligence gathering is a remarkably creative, but obscure concept that existed nearly 60 years ago. Does it explain every aspect of every detail of every incident Navy personnel have described over the last 15 years? No, but nothing else does without jumping to some extreme, extremely reality-warping conclusions. At the same time, as I have stressed repeatedly, it is entirely possible, if not probable, that there isn't a monolithic answer to the UFO question, and that multiple truths exist regarding the topic as a whole, and even regarding the, indiv the individual cases that are making headlines today. In the end, that's all this balloon theory is, a possibility. One of a number to mull over as we all continue on what has become an increasingly historic and bizarre quest for the truth. So, Rogaway thinks that there may be multiple explanations for what the Navy has been encountering, including some combination of secret U.S., foreign, and even alien technologies. But he raises the idea that some of these are balloon radar targets, maybe with some additional gear on them to confuse radars, uh, is a possibility. But now things are going to get really interesting. What happened now? On June 28th, Brett Tingley and Tyler Rogaway published a Warzone article that showed the Navy got a patent for a UFO-like technology by warning of similar Chinese efforts. Okay, so before we go further, 
does getting a patent mean that a technology has actually been built? No. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office regularly gives patents for concepts, even if there's no working prototype. Uh, patents are meant to protect ideas, and just because you have an idea for how to build something doesn't mean you're in a position to actually build it. Uh, in fact, many companies apply pa for patents for devices they never go on to build. You know, Apple's got bunches of devices or bunches of patents for devices they've never come out with. So the Navy applying for a UFO-like patent doesn't mean it's built or will be building what they patented. So what did Tingley and Rogoway actually report? They said, The United States Secretary of Navy is listed as the assignee on several radical aviation technologies patented by an aerospace engineer working at the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division, NOCAD, headquarters in Patuxent River, Maryland. One of these patents describes a hybrid aerospace underwater craft claimed to be capable of truly extraordinary feats of speed and maneuverability in air, water, and outer space alike, thanks to a revolutionary electromagnetic propulsion system. Sound far-fetched? You're not alone. A primary patent examiner at the United States Patent and Trademark Office thought so too, but then the chief technical officer of the Naval Aviation Enterprise personally wrote a letter addressed to the examiner claiming that the U.S. needs the patent as the Chinese are already investing significantly in these aerospace technologies that sound eerily similar to the UFOs reported by Navy pilots in now well-known encounters. This raises the question, are the Chinese developing or even already flying craft leveraging similar advanced technology, and is the Navy now scrambling to catch up? So the Navy claims that both they and China are after UFO-like technology. Who, who's this guy that the Navy went to bat for in getting the patents? His name is Dr. Salvatore Cesar Pais, and he's a mysterious man. Tingley and Rogaway report. Little information can be found about Salvatore Cesar Pais. He has virtually no web presence. What is known is that he received a PhD in mechanical and aerospace engineering from Case Western Reserve University in 1999, and that he currently works as an aerospace engineer for NOCAD at Naval Air, St Naval Air Station Patuxent River in Maryland, the Navy's top aircraft test base. Pais has published several articles and presented papers at American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics conferences over the years describing his work in electromagnetic propulsion, revolutionary room temperature superconductors, and topics like his PhD, dis PhD dissertation, Bubble Generation Under Reduced Gravity Conditions for Both Co-Flow and Cross-Flow Configurations. NASA helped fund his dissertation. So if you're into science and technology, one phrase should have really leaped out at you from that. Room temperature superconductors. And what are those? They're something we don't have yet, so far as is publicly known, but they would revolutionize technology if we can get them. Ordinary materials have one or another degree of electrical resistance, even copper wires. Uh, so when you send an electric current down a wire, it will encounter resistance and lose energy. But in 1911, a Dutch physicist discovered that under certain conditions, certain materials become superconductors. They don't just conduct uh, electricity in this resistant way. 
their electrical resistance vanishes. And so a current won't lose energy as it passes through them. That's why they're super good at conducting electricity. So you could put current into a loop of superconductive wire and it would circle around indefinitely with no power source. Um, if we had technology that didn't lose power due to electrical resistance, it would open up all kinds of new magical technologies. You could, for example, magnetically levitate large vehicles without additional power. Mm. Charge them once and they float. The problem is that current materials only become superconductive at extremely cold temperatures. And so you have to spend all kinds of energy cooling them down to get them to superconduct. Even the so-called high-temperature superconductors that have been formulated in the last few decades still have to be very cold. Uh, the current record for getting a material to superconduct involves using extremely high pressure and cooling the material down to minus 203 Fahrenheit, or minus 70 degrees Celsius. Finding room temperature superconductors where you don't need to spend energy to cool them down would be a holy grail of materials science and would unlock all kinds of new technologies. Uh, based on Dr. Pais's work in 2016, the U.S. Secretary of the Navy filed a patent application for a room temperature superconductor, and the weirdness doesn't end there. According to Tingley and Rogaway, Pais is named as the inventor on four separate patents for which the U.S. Navy is the assignee. A curiously shaped high-frequency gravitational wave generator, a room temperature superconductor, an electromagnetic force field generator that could deflect asteroids, and perhaps the strangest of all, one titled Craft Using an Inertial Mass Reduction Device. While all are pretty outlandish sounding, the latter is the one that the Chief Technical Officer of the Naval Aviation Enterprise personally vouched for in a letter to the USPTO claiming the Chinese are already developing similar capabilities. So all of this is gobsmacking, a gravitational wave generator, a room temperature superconductor, a way of electromagnetically deflecting asteroids, and a drive that involves reducing a craft's inertial mass. I mean, no wonder the patent office balked at these claims. Here is a description of one of the things that they proposed. The hybrid aerospace underwater craft in Pais's patent, meanwhile, is described as being capable of incredible feats of speed and maneuverability and can fly equally well in air, water, or space without leaving a heat signature. This is possible, Pais claims in, his, in the patent, because the craft is able to engineer the fabric of our reality at the most fundamental level by exploiting the laws of physics. The concept is fairly simple, although the engineering required to make it a reality is anything but. All matter contains energy on the quantum level. By theoretically creating its own incredibly dense and polarized energy field, the hybrid craft is claimed to be able to create a quantum vacuum around, around itself, which allows it to repel any air or water molecules with which it interacts. Thus, the craft can essentially ignore aerodynamic or hydrodynamic forces 
or so it is claimed in the patent. Notice how this proposed craft fits some of the performance characteristics of the craft the Navy pilots have reported. Extreme speed and ability to move equally well through the water and in the air. So what happened when they applied for the patents? According to Tingley and Rogaway, the application was initially rejected by patent examiner, examiner Philip Bunzel on the grounds that there is no such thing as a repulsive EM energy field, and that when referring to the specifications as to ascertain about the microwave emitters needed in this system, it is seen that for a high-energy electromagnetic field to polarize a quantum vacuum as claimed it would take, 10 billion Teslas, or 18 quintillion volts per meter squared, that's roughly the equivalent to the magnetic strength generated by most magnetars and more electricity than what is produced by nuclear reactors. Obviously, the examiner believed it's impossible with today's technology to create the insane amount of energy needed to generate the EM field that would propel this craft in the manner described in the patent application. What would be needed to generate such vast amounts of energy? Sorry. What would be needed to generate such amounts of energy is perhaps the potentially revolutionary room temperature superconductor described in one of Pais's other patents for which the Navy is listed as the assignee. And the Navy went to bat for this. The chief technology officer of the U.S. Naval Aviation Enterprise, Dr. James Sheehy, personally vouched for the legitimacy of this beyond revolutionary aerospace technology in the Navy's appeal to the U.S. PTO. Sheehy assured the patent examiner in charge of this application that the aircraft propulsion method described in the patent is indeed possible, or will be soon, based on experiments and tests NOCAD has already conducted. It's important to note that she, he doesn't go so far as to say on the record that the Navy currently possesses this technology, and instead notified patent examiner Philip Bunzel that he agrees that this mode of acceleration slash movement is beyond the state of the possible, at least at present, Sheehy, of course, adds that China is already investing significantly in this area and would prefer we, the U.S., hold the patent as opposed to paying forevermore to use this revolutionary technology as he asserts this will become a reality. Tingley and Rogaway also observe, It is also important to note that if the Navy had wanted this patent to remain classified, it could have filed the patent under the Invention Secrecy Act of 1951, a law which allows patents to remain classified if they might pose a possible threat to the national security of the United States. Instead, all of Pais's patents are currently fully available to the public. If such a propulsion technology was so revolutionary, and if the Navy indeed wanted to keep this technology out of others' hands, it's curious that they would choose to make the patent public. Maybe the Navy is signaling to its adversaries that it, too, is aware of this revolutionary capability and to whom it belongs. So this may be part of an information warfare campaign involving the U.S. and China. Phew! <laughs> so, what happened in July? <laughs> in early July, Fox News correspondent Tucker Carlson spoke with President Trump, and he said... You gave an interview the other day in which you said you've been briefed on unidentified flying objects. Are they, are they real? Uh, well, I don't want to really get into it too much, but personally, I tend to doubt it. Uh, I mean, you have people that swear by it, right? And pilots have come in and they said, and these are pilots that are not pilots that are into that 
particular world. But we have had people saying that they've seen things. Uh, I'm not a believer, but, you know, I guess anything's possible. We spoke to a government official recently who said the U.S. government had wreckage from a UFO in a, in a facility on an Air Force base. Are you familiar with that? I haven't heard that, no. I haven't heard that. Uh, it has not been within government, has not been a big thing, but I've seen it. I've seen it on your show, but I've seen it. Uh, I don't assume it's correct, but, you know. I have an open mind, Tucker. No, you do, Mr. President. Thank you for that. Nowadays, you can believe anything, right? (laughs) Again, a noncommittal but skeptical response. All right. Then what happened in August? On August 2nd, Brett Tingley had another story on the patents the Navy applied for based on the works of Dr. Pais. He reported, We came across documents that seem to suggest, at least by the Navy's own claims, that two highly peculiar Navy patents the room temperature superconductor, and the high-energy electromagnetic field generator may in fact already be in operation in some manner. In these patent documents, the inventors, Salvatore Pais, Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division's patent attorney, Mark O. Glutt, and the U.S. Naval Aviation Enterprises Chief Technology Officer, Dr. James Sheehy, all assert that these inventions are not only enabled, but operable. To help me understand what that term may mean in these contexts, I reached out to Peter Mlynek, a patent attorney. Mlynek informed me that the terms operable or operability are not common in patent applications, but there is little doubt that the use of the term is meant to assert to the patent office that these inventions actually work. So the Navy appears to be asserting that the room temperature superconductor and the high energy electromagnetic field generator actually work, that they've got this online in some form. The latter would have astonishing applications. In the patent for the high energy electromagnetic field generator, the technology is described as being able to create what is essentially a force field straight out of science fiction one that could generate an impenetrable defensive shield to sea and land as well as space-based military and civilian assets, protecting these assets from such threats as anti-ship ballistic missiles, radar-evading cruise missiles, top attack from main battle tanks, land and sea-based systems, as well as counteracting the effects of solar-induced coronal mass ejections or defending critical military satellites in an anti-satellite role space-based system. Also earlier this year, Dr. Pais spoke at a conference here in San Diego. In his presentation at the 2019 AIAA SciTech Forum, Pais claims that this device could even serve as an optimal asteroid deflector to save the world from 99942 Apophis, a 370-meter diameter near-Earth asteroid, which has been predicted to come dangerously close to our planet in 2029 and 2036. Tingley also spoke with Dr. Mark Gubrud, a physicist at the University of North Carolina, who thought that Dr. Pais's patents involve a bunch of sophisticated technobabble, but aren't really possible. Uh, when asked why Dr. Sheehy of the Navy would vouch for Dr. Pais's inventions, Gubrud replied, I don't know why Sheehy defended Pais's patents. I'm certain it's not because they really make some kind of sense. I suspect the story of ju- is just one professional charlatan who has embedded himself in the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division, plus one or a few supervisors he's managed to fool. Another physicist Tingley spoke to said that Pais's claims 
quote, bear no more resemblance to quantum physics as I understand it than does the force from Star Wars, close quote. So harsh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tingley himself states, With all this in mind, it's certainly possible that these patents are part of some ongoing information campaign designed to make America's competitors question what types of black budget research is currently underway at NACAD and other research organizations. With so many revolutionary new aerospace technologies on the brink of deployment, perhaps this is an attempt to essentially weaponize patents and sow doubt among our adversaries and even inject confusion among the American populace. That scenario seems more likely given the fact that the Naval Aviation Enterprise Chief Technical Officer Dr. Sheehy claimed Chinese advances in similar capabilities as a means of getting the hybrid aerospace underwater craft patent application approved. The U.S. and China are in a new technological arms race to develop the next generations of aircraft and advanced weaponry. Part of this race includes producing disinformation and misinformation to make your enemy invest resources, both intelligence and research and development related, that are, for lack of a better term, for lack of a better word, dead ends. Being able to explain away strange objects in the sky as UFOs, which may indeed be emerging classified capabilities, is also beneficial both here at home and abroad. At the same time, maybe this is the Pentagon's grasping attempt to try to make sense of and emulate mysterious and seemingly highly advanced craft that are supposedly being increasingly observed near its own aircraft, vessels, and installations. Maybe the Chinese competition claim is just a placeholder for the unknown. Or all this could be a case of wasteful, misguided, or even downright corrupt spending on ideas that have no real chance of paying off down the line. So, bunches of possibilities. <laughs> so that's what happened in August. Is there any news from September? On September 10th, John Greenwald of The Black Vault, so this is the other website I mentioned, published a story dealing with correspondence he had with the Navy regarding the release of the original ATIP videos. According to Greenwald, The Navy designates the objects contained in these videos as unidentified aerial phenomena, said Joseph Gratisher, official spokesperson for the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare. So the Navy is saying they don't know what these objects are. Uh, Greenwald also said this. The Navy told the Black Vault the three videos are considered unclassified. However, unclassified information still requires a review for public release. Anything considered unclassified may still contain sensitive information, imagery, or data embedded within digital files that may not be considered classified, yet it may still be considered sensitive. Multiple statements and written records now show that the approval required for public release never took place, and the claims by the To the Stars Academy, or TTSA, that the videos represent official evidence released by the U.S. government remain unfounded. This new information comes amidst a flurry of other official comments complicating the claims of TTSA. In May of this year, the Black Vault began receiving the first statements from the Pentagon indicating the FLIR-1, Gimbal, and Go Fast videos were not cleared for public release despite the claims of TTSA. In June, Keith Clore, with The Intercept, received a statement from the Pentagon that Mr. Luis Elizondo had no responsibilities within the ATIP program despite the widespread published claims by TTSA that he headed it. 
A 2009 letter by Senator Harry Reid was quickly touted by some to claim Mr. Elizondo's story was in fact true. However, the Pentagon quickly countered with official statements issued to the Black Vault stating that the letter's existence did not change their stance. So there's controversy about whether the videos should have been released to the public and about whether Luis Elizondo was part of ATIP. But we're not yet done with the bizarre Navy patents. There's one more. And what's that? On October 9th, Tingley and Rogaway filed another story in which they revealed that, again, based on the work of Dr. Salvatore Pais, the Navy in 2018 filed a patent for a portable nuclear fusion reactor. Hmm. To put that in context, fusion is what hydrogen bombs do. They fuse atoms together, causing them to release massive amounts of energy. This is different than what first-generation atomic bombs do, which is to release power based on fission or splitting atoms apart. We've had controlled fission reactors for a long time. That's what modern nuclear power plants use to generate electricity. But we haven't been able to achieve nuclear fusion reactions in a controlled way that gets more power out than you put in. Inventing fusion power has been incredibly hard and always seems to be 20 years in the future. Uh, scientists and engineers keep pushing the deadline forward as their latest efforts fail. Uh, fusion is thus the current holy grail of power generation. If achieved, we'd be able to power the planet for centuries just based on seawater. And there wouldn't be the nuclear waste problem that we have now because fusion reactions don't generate the same kind of nuclear waste. But now the Navy has filed a patent not just for a nuclear fusion reactor, but one that's portable. The hmm. kind of thing you could fit into an advanced craft that uses Dr. Pais's other magical technologies. So this is, again, an astonishing claim. All right. So what theories are there about what we've just covered? Uh, we've got several mysteries here. The big one is still where the objects the Navy has been encountering come from. Do they belong to the U.S., to another nation, or are they extraterrestrial in origin? Then there's the question of whether the U.S. military is releasing disinformation through these patents as part of an information war. Also, does the Navy really have a solid basis for the science fiction patents it's applied for, and are some of these technologies already operational? Then there's were the Navy UFO videos cleared for public release, and finally, was Luis Elizondo head of ATIP? All right. So what can we say about these? From the faith perspective? Not much other than the fact that there are moral questions regarding secrecy and information warfare, including disinformation. But here we'll be focusing on the reason perspective. All right. Then what can we say about the mysteries from the reason perspective? Well, let's start with the last of the mysteries, Luis Elizondo's involvement with ATIP. From things I've heard him say before, he indicated that there was a predecessor program to, to ATIP that had a different name. He's also indicated it may now have a new name, and it's possible that these name changes are why the Navy has been saying he wasn't the head of ATIP. Maybe he headed one of these related programs. We'll look more into this in the future, but it appears that there's at least a basis for saying he headed some program connected with ATIP 
there, there's room for questions about precisely what his role was, and he, he could be lying. What about whether videos were cleared for public release? The Navy documents available on the Black Vault indicate that on August 24th, 2017, the Navy cleared the videos, quote, for open publication, close quote. Elizondo has appealed to that as clearance for making them available to the public. Now, it's possible that the term for open publication is a term of art that doesn't mean the same thing as for public release in which case the Navy's claims would be right. They weren't actually cleared for public release. They were cleared for open publication, which means something else, like maybe open publication to a group of specialists or people who have clearance or something. It's also possible that Elizondo didn't know the difference and just released them thinking they had been cleared for public release. And it's possible he knew the distinction, but ignored it and turned a blind eye to it because he thought it was really important to get the videos in front of the public, which he has said he thought it was important to, you know, the public become alerted to this issue. All right. What about these fantastic Navy patents? I think it's very unlikely we currently have the technologies they describe. I think that at best, we may have workable ideas for them that may one day pan out and that... Maybe some are at a primitive stage of development. I also I also think it's possible that they're sheer nonsense, either on the part of the people proposing them or as part of a deliberate dis disinformation campaign meant to rattle our global competitors. Whether or not the patents have a solid basis, it's possible that they represent a response to others. We could be playing catch up with the Chinese or want to make the Chinese think we're playing catch up with them, even if we're far behind. We could be trying to copy the performance of extraterrestrial craft we've encountered. And we could want other world powers to think we're close to being able to copy extraterrestrial performance. Or we could simply want to intimidate our competitors into thinking that we have or are about to have magical technology, so they better not mess with us. In that case, what about the craft that the Navy has been encountering then? Those are apparently real, but they could belong to us, to another nation, or to someone from off-world. Based on the disclosures in recent months, including President Trump's rather skeptical comments about UFOs, I'd say that the chances have gone up that we may have some kind of breakthrough aerospace technologies, not necessarily the really magical ones the patents talk about, and that the Navy encounters may have been surprise tests. The Navy has said that these objects are real, uh, but said that they're not ours. Also, the Navy has been revising its rules to make it easier for pilots and personnel to report these things, suggesting that they're taking them seriously and that we don't know what they are. However, both of those could just be due to one hand of the military not knowing what the other is doing, due to the secrecy compartmentalization around the projects. All right, Jimmy, so what's your bottom line uh, on this? all this information we have in this ATIP update? I don't know what to think. There are a bunch of options here, and we'll just have to see uh, what more emerges over time. I have to be honest, I I'm, I'm more partial, not necessarily believing, but I would rather that we've suddenly developed all of this amazing new technology than that 
there are aliens who have this technology visiting us. Uh, but that's me. <laughs> I, I think in my order of preference, it, my first preference, I mean, I would love to have proof of aliens, but in, in terms of threat analysis, I would prefer that we have this and that aliens aren't here and the Chinese don't have this. Then I would prefer that aliens have this and are here, but are choosing to be standoffish and the Chinese don't have this. <laughs> Right. And then my least favorite option would be the Chinese have this and we don't. Yes, that would be very bad yeah. for us, at least. Yeah. Uh, so, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to listeners on all of this? Well, there's the unidentified TV show, and that's on, available on Amazon streaming. So you can uh, we'll have a link to that. Uh, we'll also have uh, links to various stories. One is the Politico story about the Navy revising its guidelines on UFO reporting. Then we'll have the wars, a series of articles from the War Zone on UFOs in the Department of Defense, multiple Navy pilot reports, UFOs in the new radar system. Are some UFOs radar reflectors the Navy was encountering? We'll have articles on the Navy UFO patents in China. Then we'll have an article from Wikipedia on superconductivity, the war zone on Navy claims that UFO patents are operable, and the most recent one, Navy Files Compact Fusion Reactor Patent. We'll also have an article on fusion power. Then we'll have links, uh, links to a combined video of the Gimbal, FLIR 1, and Go Fast videos, so you can see all three of them in quick succession. We'll have an article on the Tic Tac incident. More recently... David Fravor, the pilot from the Tic Tac incident, has talked about encountering a dark underwater mass that seemed to grab a torpedo. And so we'll have a link to that, a couple of links to that. We'll have a link to the Black Vault, where the Navy says the UFO videos were not cleared for release. And a, um, a newspaper editorial from the Duluth News Tribune saying that the Navy's attitude about this is really kind of disturbing. And also a congressman saying on Politico that the Navy is hiding UFO data. Mm. All right. It's all going to take me a long time to go through that and read all that, because I want to find out everything I can about this subject. Excellent. Uh, so, Jimmy, we have some mysterious feedback this week on the Betty and Barney Hill episode part two. Uh, and so the what's the our first one comes from Certainly Not on YouTube, who said, I loved the previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. To me, as a Brit, it sounds very American. <laughs> I'd never uh, thought of it being American. I was just thinking about, you know, previously on the X-Files and previously <laughs> on Deep Space Nine and things exactly. like that. I guess maybe it happens in American TV in a way it doesn't in British TV. But uh, you're going to be hearing those periodically now. We've already aired several and we'll continue to do so because we've produced now, you know, this is our 70th episode. And so we're we've built enough volume of previous episodes that we can refer back to things, to conversations we've already had. And rather than repeating everything in those conversations to bring people up to speed, it's easier just to do a recap, which is the same way, same reason TV shows do that. So uh, like a long running TV show tends to develop recaps at the beginning, we're now at that same point. And so you'll be hearing those from time to time. And, and uh, I, I think they're fun to do. I like editing down the previous episode and giving you the previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. <laughs> and, you know, when we're doing episodes that are too long to do in one, you know, one one episode length, yeah. uh, we, we do that as well so that you don't have to go back and remember what you heard a week ago. 
because uh, frankly i don't often <laughs> remember enough I'm like oh that's what he's talking about yeah so that's or, very or, helpful or like with this episode we had a precap that goes all the way back to episode 41 and we're yes. now on episode 70 right adam hovey writes on youtube i think mr mr hill may be being honest not that it actually happened but that's what he remembers mrs hill i'm not too terribly sure about one thing that i noticed when i was listening to the recordings which i think was really good it was that Mr. Hill was calling for God to give him strength, unless I heard it wrong. Well, that's something that I think that I can agree with is a good thing. Even if the memories are false, he still knew who to call on. I believe you said that they were Unitarians. So while they had the wrong understanding of God, Mr. Hill at least knew of his dependence on God. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I think Barney was being honest. Uh, I think his, he let his imagination, you know, and his anxiety disorder get the better of him. and in part based on Betty's dreams that she related in his presence. But I think he was being honest. And even though, unfortunately, he was a Unitarian rather than a Trinitarian, at least he did have a sense of his dependence on God. And that's good. Mm. Uh, Kathy writes on Facebook, when I heard at the end of part one that they were making this episode in two parts, I groaned. I considered it obvious that Betty Hill was a compulsive liar. Part two did not change my mind, but Jimmy's explanation of the whole thing was very interesting and really made me think about the Betty Hill type people I know in a more nuanced way. I agree, agree with the mother of teenage boys who complimented Jimmy on his explicating skills. He thinks like a Thomist engineer. Interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard that comparison before, um, but thank <laughs> you. I appreciate it. Personally, my take is I don't, I don't know that Betty was consciously lying. I tend to think of her more as just a fantasy-prone personality. Mm, uh, that's a good distinction. So, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? In keeping with our outer space theme for this episode, uh, let's talk about a story where the To The Stars Academy, remember them? They claim to have exotic materials that may be from a UFO and they're testing them. Mm. So, also, in keeping with our outer space theme, how'd you like it if there's a black hole in our solar system? Uh, not very much. <laughs> yeah, well, so here's the deal. We have gravitational evidence suggesting there's a big planet beyond Pluto, but they've been looking for it and they can't find it. So maybe it's not a big planet. Maybe it's a small black hole. Ooh, that would be uh, dangerous. <laughs> we got right. close, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Jimmy, in a second, I'll ask you what's gonna our next episode is going to be about. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Edward B., Paul L., Enabong A., Ryan O., and Justin H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is going to be about the mysterious death of Frank Olson. It is a story that takes us back to the McCarthy era in the 1950s, and it involves the CIA, LSD, and murder. Ooh. I love the ones where we don't, where I've never heard of it. And mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is one of those. This is going to be awesome. All right. So that's it from us. What do you think about this update on the Navy's UFO monitoring program called ATIP and all the other things we talked about. Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world 
with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. Be sure to subscribe if you have not yet done so in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube at the SQPN YouTube channel where you should hit the bell uh, to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>